Mark chapter 11, we have been walking through this wonderful book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we are at a a significant turning point within the book of Mark. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem and the events that are going to unfold in that city. Traditionally, this passage is a passage that may be considered part of Palm Sunday as we think of the, the Passion Week of Christ and all the, all the events that transpired leading up to His death, His burial, and His resurrection. We find uh, Jesus is, is known as the triumphal entry, is His entrance into Jerusalem and the significance and all the fanfare and all the things that surrounds that. And yet we know the events that are going to unfold and the results of what is going to happen in Jerusalem. Before we get to all of those things, before we we let ourselves get, get carried into all those things, we have this text, we have this moment, we have this triumphal entry, and we need to ask the question, what is happening in this text? What is Jesus doing? What is his purpose in Jerusalem as he enters in in this marvelous fashion and with all the, all the fanfare and all the shouting and all the jubilation going on? Why is he doing this when he knows that his life is going to end in crucifixion? That is what we need to turn ourselves, our attention to as we study this text today. Let's look at our text. This is Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said, and they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered at Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. From this text, there are several things that I want us to see and to know as a result of of our time together today. Many things that are within this text, they aren't things that we have not yet seen before. These aren't things that are unknown to us. These are things that we have previously identified and talked through at different points as we've walked through this wonderful gospel. And yet there are things worth remembering and worth reminding ourselves of from the truthfulness of what's happening here. Let's turn our attention to first these first 
several verses, the preparation of Christ as, as he is about to enter into Jerusalem. We see his preparation that he does, and, and it's this preparation of Christ that reinforces our conviction that Christ, that Jesus, is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. We need to know this. There are several things in this text that, that reinforce this idea for us, that, that make it clear for us that Christ, He is the one that is in control over the events that are about to transpire in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus was not someone who just happened to be at the right place at the right time when, when there was all this, this fanfare and all these things and people were just looking for someone to put into positions of, of power. Jesus was not someone who just stumbled into dumb luck and like, well, hey, you know, we, we need somebody, so hey, just, it might as well be you. And he was not someone who was thrust into this position that he's about to ride into the city of Jerusalem. He was not someone who was thrust in there by, by a crowd against his will, saying, no, no, we need you to do this, and you're going to do this, and they grabbed him and did this. No, this is not how things went Jesus Christ arranged this. Jesus Christ has overseen all of this by his sovereign design. Look what he says to his disciples in verse 2. Go into the village in front of you. And then he tells you exactly what they will find. There's a colt. He's going to be tied there. No one's ever sat on that colt. That's the one I want. You need to bring it. And then he's going to tell them, hey, and if someone says... And then questions you on this, well, this is how you are to respond. And that's exactly how things unfold. So Jesus clearly has made plans here. He clearly has an intent with how things are to happen. And so he gives his disciples instructions on how to carry out his agenda. Now, there had been some discussions about this text and on whether or not Jesus had... What's going on in this text? Did Jesus, did Jesus previously make arrangements with the owner of that donkey and say, hey, you know, uh, I need this to happen, and maybe he did that through natural means of which we aren't aware, that's not detailed for us in the text, or perhaps maybe this is, I guess maybe you could say a bit of a minor miracle where, where Jesus has sent them along, and, and by some miracle, by giving this instruction, the owner of this donkey is going to release it into the use and the service of our Lord. The answer to that question, I have to say, is I, I believe is largely insignificant for the meaning of this text and, what, and our understanding of what's going on here. Uh, surely the, the miracle would demonstrate Christ's sovereignty over his ministry and over the circumstances and, and things and, and his introduction to Jerusalem as the Messiah King. But even if Jesus had somehow made other arrangements that aren't detailed for us in this text through what we might be considered more natural means just through hey, sending someone along, hey, we need a donkey, hey, can you provide this for us? Even if that was the case, it still does not take away from the fact that Jesus is the one who is in control here, that Jesus is the one who has the plan here, and Jesus is the one who is laying things out and is unfolding according to his grand design. It does not diminish his sovereignty we recall all throughout Jesus's ministry, Jesus has consistently unfolded his ministry and revealed who he is and what he is to accomplish progressively over time, and he did so according to his own agenda. So we've talked about this concept of the messianic secret, 
Right? Jesus heals somebody and then he tells him, don't tell anyone about this, but go your way. And theologians have traditionally called that the messianic secret because Jesus is preventing those who would spread the news around, he's preventing them from doing so. Why? Why? Why is he doing this? Because it's not yet time. And Jesus is progressively, according to his time frame, according to his agenda, according to what he des- uh, designs and intends to accomplish, is revealing the appropriate amount of information at the right moment as he instructs his disciples, as he teaches them about what it means for him to be the Messiah. And that continues on, that that trajectory of Jesus being in control of his ministry continues on here with the preparations that were made for his entry. And, And here, you know, we talk about that messianic secret. The doors are about to be blown off of that secret here with this triumphal entry. And it is Jesus who has personally set the stage for that to happen. Jesus is the one who made the arrangements, whether that's naturally or supernaturally, to bring all of these things together at this moment. And so the disciples go. All right, there they go. They find the colt. They, they start to take it. And we see in verse 5, there are some, hey, what are you doing? That's not yours. That, that, what are you doing? And they, they say what they were instructed to say, and they let them go. Okay, off you go with the cold, all according to the plan of Jesus Christ. Preparation of Christ helps us know that Christ is in control. He is sovereign over the events that are about to unfold in Jerusalem. He is sovereign over his triumphal entry, and he is sovereign over the steps that will eventually lead to his death. He has predicted what is to come. He has predicted and has prepared his disciples for his death. And here he has provided the way and made all the necessary preparations for this grand entrance into Jerusalem. Your knowledge that that our Lord is sovereign and is in control of these things, this should bring us tremendous comfort, should it not? I don't know if you've ever heard of of someone say something that, okay, they've experienced something unique and they've experienced something that was just so special and so, man, how how could this happen? And they say something like, oh yeah, it it was such a God thing that that came about. You heard, heard people say that? What is often meant by that is that, again, the, the events that unfolded, they, were, they unfolded in such a way that they couldn't have been by any natural arrangement. This had to be an arrangement of the sovereign Lord. This had to be something that God did because it couldn't have come about otherwise. And sometimes I have often thought, you know, that phrase is kind of trite. I, I, I just, I'm not sure how I feel about that phrase at times. And yet there is significant truth that's communicated by that. Yes! That was a God thing. God did accomplish that. God was the one who arranged those events together. And so it is good, it is right for us to thank Him and praise Him for that. There are many pathways that we must walk. We are never outside of the sovereign control of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we look at things that are positive as, oh yeah, that was such a God thing. Thank you, Lord, for that. What about the things that are less pleasant for us to walk through? 
So often we can fail to see the, the God thing moments when we are afflicted by various negative circumstances and trials that we must go through in life. You know, when, when our car battery dies, we never say, oh, this is such a God thing. <laughs> you know, we, we don't do that, do we? But is our Lord any less sovereign over those things than he is over the, the happy coincidences that we find ourselves in life? I say that tongue-in-cheek. There's no such thing as coincidences, right? It is the Lord who is at work. But we don't tend to recognize it as much in the negative as, in the, as we do in the positive. But God is still at work. One thing that I have heard people say that I think is good and right and appropriate for us to say when we do encounter these challenging times that for to acknowledge the Lord's guidance, the Lord's direction, the Lord's sovereignty in the midst of these things, we can say things like, yes, I need to remind ourselves, myself that God is in control. Even through whatever the circumstances are that I find myself in, God is still in control of this. It's not outside of his watch. It's not beyond his eye. He is still overseeing all of it. You know, I just prayed for the Nikem family as they are looking to travel back overseas. And they have been praying for this. They've been looking for this. Is, is, is the nation of China outside of God's sovereign control? No. In God's good and perfect plan and in his timing, doors will be open according to his will. And so we have various texts of Scripture that remind us how God is at work, even through our challenging circumstances. 1 Peter 4.12 uh, says, brethren, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now in that context, the context there was of persecution for those who were standing for truth, standing for Jesus Christ, and they were encountering trials on account of the faith. Peter says, don't be surprised, but look unto your God. James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James 1, 2 through 4. God is at work through both our negative circumstances and our positive circumstances, as James is going to go on to say, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, from whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. James 1.17. We have to recognize that the Lord is in control of all these things, whether it's the, the negative things that happen in our lives, the positive things, the Lord is sovereign. And so it is good, it is right for us to look upward unto the Lord, to recognize His sovereign providence over the affairs of men. And it is good and is right for us to trust. Trust in the sovereign providence of our Lord. Trust that He knows what He is doing. It is good and it is right for us to worship our Lord. To come before Him. To give Him the praise, the honor, and the glory. Both now and forever because of who He is. Because of what He has done. Because... He has his plans and his purposes that he is accomplishing. I'm reminded of that truth 
through the preparations that, are, that the Lord made as he is entering into Jerusalem, that he is still in control of his own pathway, of his own ministry, of the things that he intends to accomplish. He is still overseeing it all. So the preparation of our Lord helps us know that Christ is sovereign. Second, the triumphal entry of Christ as he does ride into Jerusalem, riding that colt. It it reminds us that Jesus is the Messiah King. He is the Messiah King. There are several details in this text that help us see that Jesus, what he is doing here, it's, it's more than just like a little parade, Right? Uh, we have our Christmas time praise that we like. I don't, I don't know if Jeff's has happened yet. Uh, probably still to come, I would imagine. Uh, but we have our different praise or, uh, that we enjoy. We, we enjoy those things. That's, that's not what Christ is doing here, right? This isn't just a parade for him because, hey, he thinks he's somebody special. No, there's something significant at play here. This is more than the recognition of a mere prophet. This is nothing else than Jesus Christ presenting himself to his people as their Messiah King, if they would have him. Several points help us see the kingship of Christ here. First, see Jesus' instructions to the disciples. They are fetching a colt of a certain kind. What does it say? A colt on which no one has ever sat. Calling for such an animal is certainly a sign of kingship. Kings have a certain prerogative that, they're, that the steed on which they ride, and no one else is allowed to ride on that. That is reserved for the king and for the king alone. And the Mishnah states as such that says that, that no one can sit upon the horse of the king except for the king. Jesus, as he calls for this colt, he says, now this is a colt that no one else has ridden and I am going to ride that colt. I am the Messiah King. Think of, you know, in, in today's day and age, I was trying to think of parallels to this. And think of, you know, we see the presidential limos, right? With the, with the emblem on the side and there's the flags there that yeah, this is the, the limo of the president's. If someone were to try to pull up in a presidential limo guarded by secret service and wearing, you know, wearing a nice presidential suit and they stepping out, you know, it would be very clear what they're trying to communicate, right? They're, they'd be trying to say, yes, I am the president of these United States, right? That vehicle that, surrounded by those people in that moment communicates something about who that individual is. And so for the call for Jesus Christ to call that colt and say, yes, this is something unique about this colt, and I'm going to ride that colt into Jerusalem in this fashion that communicates something about who Jesus is claiming to be. Second, the way Jesus has secured the use of the cult is something called impressments, uh, something that a king or other government official could commandeer the use of a horse or a chariot or something for some official business. I don't know if you've ever seen like an action movie where there's some, some government agent who there's a bad guy he's chasing and the bad guy's starting to get away and, and he's getting away in a getaway vehicle or something and he comes up and he flashes his badge to some unsuspecting civilian saying, I need your car for official business and he hops in and drives away chasing the bad guy, right? It's impressments. There's a need, there's official government business that is at play there, and Jesus is exercising his royal right to make temporary use of that cult 
for official business, the presentation of the King of Kings. Third, Jesus' selection of the cult is a fulfillment of a specific prophecy that we find in the book of Zechariah. Look at Zechariah 9, verse 9. Says this, rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The choice of the donkey's colt. And all the way that this is set up and the way it is presented and prepared makes it clear what Jesus is doing. He is riding in, in fulfillment of this Zechariah prophecy. Now, both Matthew and John are going to explicitly quote this passage in their Gospels as they explain what Jesus is doing here. Mark, Mark leaves it implicit, but the connection is unmistakable. Jesus is presenting himself as the fulfillment of this prophecy as the Messiah King. Fourth, as he comes into the city, notice what the people are doing in, in verse 8. Look at what it says here. They says they, they, they spread their cloaks on the road and, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. This is another sign that they were welcoming royalty into the city, that they were preparing the pathway for the royal king to enter in. You know, there's a, a passage in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 9, verse 13, that, that speaks of another king as he was crowned king. It says, it says this, Then in haste, every man then of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So they provided the walkway that, that Jehu was to go. They, they, they spread their cloaks out before him that he might walk upon them, which is a symbol that this newly recognized king is not to dirty himself with the lowly dirt of the city. This is more than just rolling out the red carpet for somebody. There is kingship declared in these actions. And fifth and finally, notice the words of the people. Notice what they say in verse 9. And those who went before and those followed after were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna! In the highest. Hosanna means save, I pray. It's a prayer unto the Lord. Hosanna, Lord, save. Work your salvation. That line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is quoted from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. And then we have, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And we saw last week the, uh, the blind man as he was calling out, Son of David, have mercy on me, Son of David. He was calling out to Jesus and identifying him as the Son of David. And we talked last week about the significance of that. That Jesus was the one, that, as the Son of David, that was fulfilling all these prophecies about what the, the David's son was to do. And here, they're calling out, and looking forward to the coming kingdom of David when the son of David will sit on the throne of David. 
I was reading one commentator this week who was making note of this passage, and he said that you know, these words, they don't necessarily overtly messianic on their face. Right? They don't directly say, Jesus is the Davidic king. And yet, all of these words are laced with messianic undertone. Laced with, with messianic undertones. The, the son of David will sit on David's throne at some point. So they hail Jesus as he's riding into Jerusalem and they cry out in such a way that it shows that they are looking for, they're anticipating the inauguration of this Davidic reign. And it's left implicit that Jesus is the one who will sit on that throne, but it is no less clear. It is not difficult to see the connection. We don't have to squint our eyes to see what's going on with these declarations. He is the Messiah King. You know, these words may be partially veiled, partially because I'm sure the Roman government would not be too happy. They would not look kindly upon someone riding in Jerusalem, overtly claiming to be the king. And yet... All of these actions and all of these words, all of the events and things surrounding all of this make it very, very clear what the implication of these things are. Jesus is claiming to be the messianic king. Well, what is going on with this declaration? How, what is Jesus intending to accomplish? Is, is he intending to to overthrow the Roman government? What are his purposes in declaring himself to be that messianic king? I believe what's going on here is Jesus is presenting himself as king to the people of Israel. The Old Testament prophecies foretold of a day when, when there would be a kingdom that would be reestablished and the Messiah would rule and reign and he would issue forth justice. He would... He would provide all of these things. He would accomplish so many great things. And I believe that had they embraced Jesus as their Messiah in this moment from this declaration, that Jesus would have ushered in that messianic kingdom to them. This was a genuine offer of the kingdom to the people of Israel. But as we will see, they sadly reject that offer. And they are going to reject their Messiah, King. Sometimes I wonder what would have happened if, if they had it, would have accepted that offer. Would they have crowned him right then and there? Would, what would it look like? He, he would have still had to die as a sacrifice, as the perfect Lamb of God. That still would have had to, to happen. And just how would have all that have looked? We don't know. It's... At this point, it's, it's mere speculation for us. But here the people are, being presented with their king. And as we will see in coming weeks, they're going to say, no thanks. Think of the scene in, in Lord of the Rings with Boromir where he says, Gondor has no king, and Gondor needs no king. Jesus is presented as the Messiah King, and yet he is going to be rejected by the people. Going back to the very beginning of the book of Mark, there are several things that, that we have seen as we have traced forward up to this moment. 
Some of the very first things that Mark desired to establish was first that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. John was to prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus was baptized. There was the heavenly testimony. This is my beloved Son. He is the promised Messiah. And there's the testimony of Peter. You are the Christ. And the second thing that we identified that that Mark was seeking to establish is that Jesus has authority. We saw he has real authority, not like the scribes or the Pharisees as they're trying to teach from the Word of God, but no, he speaks with real authority, so much so that the people are amazed at it. He has the authority over the demonic realm. He has authority to forgive sins. He has authority over the Sabbath. He has authority over illness and disease. And he has authority even over nature, the sea, the storm, everything. He is the one with authority on earth. Jesus, this whole time, has been demonstrating that he is the Messiah King. His entire ministry brings him to this one moment where he, where he is presented as such as if he were to say, I've been demonstrating who I am throughout my entire ministry. And here's the declaration and presentation of my kingship. Will you have me? And the people are going to say, no. We will not. which leaves us with a challenge about how we are to respond to the claims of Jesus Christ over our lives. Jesus offers us entrance into the eternal kingdom for all those who will repent and trust in him and him alone. Will you receive him? Those who would follow him are are called to take up their cross daily and and come after him and follow him, live in obedience to him, called to live as he instructs. Are we willing to be obedient to our Messiah, King? I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way as as far as the sins that we struggle with in life and that that we wrestle with and that we, by God's grace, are gaining mastery over progressively as we go through life and we have these different sins every time we choose sin over and against the way of jesus christ we're not just sinning in that moment but we are actually living in rebellion against christ's kingship over our lives he has instructed us in the way that we ought to live and in that moment we are not in submission to him and to his word Jesus is the Messiah King, and he rightfully deserves our obedience. But hear me on this. Hear me on this. His commands are not burdensome. His commands are not burdensome. 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Do you claim to love God? Do you obey what he has to say? But then John goes on to say, but his commands are not burdensome. Jesus isn't interested in heaping all these things upon us and and putting all these commands upon us that are designed to just weigh us down and to keep us pushed down into submission of him. His design is for your good and for your benefits. 
is in following Christ, in, in obedience to Christ. That's where true freedom is found. That's where the shackles are broken free. To live as he instructs is to have life, it is to have joy, it is to have peace. Jesus knows what's best for us, and his commands are only out of his love for us that we would live fruitful and fulfilled lives. And so this, this command to live in obedience to Christ, that's not designed to, to weigh us down and to, and to keep us burnt down and, and pushed down. No, it's, it's because he has, he has our, I'm fumbling over the, the, the turn of the phrase, he has our best interests in mind and he intends good in our lives through the things that he commands. So to live in disobedience to him and to his word, it's not only rebellion against the Messiah King, but it's a statement of distrust in the God who says, I love you, and this is the good thing that I want from you through living this way. Sometimes we sing that song, trust and obey, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. It communicates the sweetness of following Christ. There's a sweetness, there's, there's joy in obedience because it is an obedience where true life and freedom are found. And so when we think about Jesus being the Messiah King and, and His authority and His rulership, that should be good news. That should not be burdensome to us. We should delight in the rule of our Messiah King because He has commanded good things for us. And following the way that he commands leads to our flourishing. Jesus is the Messiah King, and that is very good news. Finally, before we close out, there's one more verse left in our text, verse 11, where we are reminded that Jesus sees all he entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, in one sense, this might seem like a strange thing for Mark to detail out for us, like, okay, he, he rides into Jerusalem, as, as this great climactic moment, as this great triumphal entry, as it is often called, and then he comes to the temple, takes a look around, and then leaves. What's, what's going on there? Why, why, why is this happening? Why is this unfolding this way? This verse is a bit of an ominous verse. We might have expected something else to take place with the arrival of the Messiah King. Perhaps this should have been the moment where Jesus would have been crowned right then and there, but that doesn't happen. Jesus' presentation seems to have largely gone perhaps somewhat unnoticed. Certainly the people would have reckoned, seen him as he's coming into the city. There's people coming from the outside bringing him in. And yet, he comes into the temple, looks around, and then departs. But what does he do while he is in the temple? It says in the middle of that verse, when he had looked around at everything, Jesus took in the scene before him. He gazed upon all that was transpiring in front of him. And then he goes back to Bethany for the evening. What did he see? 
What did Jesus Christ see? As he's looking around at everything, what is he looking at? As we will learn next week, we will see the things that were happening in the temple were not positive things. This temple is designed to be a place of worship, and Jesus is going to say they turned it into a den of thieves. So what I believe is happening in this verse, this is a bit of an ominous verse. It is a precursor to the judgment that is going to fall upon the people of Jerusalem. The concept found throughout the Old Testament of the the Lord coming in and seeing and looking for himself to see what's going on before he sends judgment is is a theme that's found in many places throughout the Old Testament. Just a couple of places to highlight for you. I think of Genesis 6, 5, when the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And what followed from there was the great flood that destroyed all living things on earth except for those who were on the ark. Or Genesis chapter 18, when the Lord says, uh, this is when he's coming to Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is very great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so he does. And we have that story of, of these men that come and speak with Abraham and Abraham seeks to plead on behalf of the cities and yet it is not enough. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed for their sin. And yet Lot and his family in God's grace are allowed to escape. Proverbs reminds us the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. The Lord is aware of the things that are transpiring in the world. Jesus enters into the temple complex and he looks around at everything. He sees what's happening there. This is not an empty gaze. This is not something you're just... just taking in the scene, taking in the glory of the temple. Oh, wow, look at this magnificent temple. No. Jesus just doesn't see the temple. He sees what's happening, and he does not approve. And the very next day, he will return in judgment. We are reminded that Jesus sees all. There's a two-edged sword with this reality of Jesus seeing all. There's, there's, there's good things and, and, and things that might be concerning to us depending on our, where we stand in Christ. There's a song that we've sung a couple of times. It's been a long time since we've sung it, but it, it's based on Psalm 139, which, which talks about that the, the Lord is acquainted with all my ways. All my ways are before him. He sees it all. And so there's the chorus of the song that goes like this. Oh, what peace that I have found wherever I may be, for all my ways are known to you. Hallelujah, they are known to you. Praise the Lord. He sees. He knows what we're going through. He knows the path that we're on. He sees everything that is in our lives. There's nothing that is hidden from the Lord. And for those who walk with Christ, this is good news. This is tremendously good news. The Lord knows us. He's aware of who we are. He's aware of what we're going through in life. You are known by your God. 
and yet the other side of that equation. Those who are in rebellion and rejection of their king is the cause of fear and terror because the Lord knows. The Lord knows. Jesus sees. His gaze sees all the wickedness that occurs even when the recesses of our own hearts. He knows every evil desire, every wicked thought, every evil deed. There's nothing that is hidden from his gaze. He sees it all, and those who persist in faithless rebellion will receive the judgment that is to come. But it doesn't have to be that way. This is what makes the good news so great. Though this is a weighty thing, this is a heavy thing for those who trust in Jesus Christ, the gaze of the Lord, His his eyesight, His awareness of everything that is going on can be good news because we can take comfort in knowing that our God is aware of everything that we experience in life. And though He sees all my ways and though He even knows all the evil that I have ever done, Yet, while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we can rest in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because He still, despite my sin, He still loves me. Despite my prone to wanderness, He still directs my way. And so as we consider this triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, this presentation of the Messiah King, the one who is sovereignly in control of his ministry, and he has his plans and his agenda, and he is accomplishing his purposes. The sovereign King, the one who has authority over us, but his commands are not burdensome to us. The presentation of the one who sees all. I challenge us today to consider our ways before the Lord. Are you resting and trusting in your sovereign Messiah King today? Do you know what he has designed to accomplish on the, as we're going to continue moving forward in this story of the book of Mark, what Christ is going to accomplish on that cross? As we sang that song earlier, Christ has been born for you. That all who would believe in Jesus Christ would receive all the blessings that come of being part of his family. Adopted into the divine family. Sons and daughters of the King of Kings. This Messiah King. This Lord over all. His family. Sons and daughters of him. Granted entrance into the eternal kingdom. Offered forgiveness of our sins. That we may not fear the gaze of the Lord, but look upon his gaze with delight and comfort that he knows all that we experience. Look unto your Messiah. Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you for your word. Thank you that that Jesus Christ is the Messiah King. Lord, it grieves our hearts to, to read about the rejection 
that was experienced by Christ through the, uh, the people there at that time. They did not see him for who he was. They did not receive him for the Messiah King that he was. Lord, I pray that we would not be guilty of the same thing. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful uh, to walk after you. I pray that your spirit would enable us and strengthen us. And that we would not seek to accomplish our own sanctification by our own effort, but we, we would look unto Christ. Yes, we, we, we need to pursue that which you have called us to pursue, but we do so in the grace and the strength and the power that your spirit provides. Lord, may we pursue that. May we take delight in our Messiah King. May we take delight in his commands that are not burdensome to us. May we take delight in the gaze of our God who sees everything, knowing that that gaze will bring about justice, that you will accomplish your perfect justice. Lord, we look forward to your return. We look forward to the day when all will see you and all, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. We look forward to the day where we will rejoice with Israel as they will finally embrace Jesus as their Messiah King. Lord, I pray until that day we would be faithful to spread the good news of the gospel of Christ, that we would point others to this great Messiah King, that you would glorify yourself through the salvation of lost souls. Pray that you would accomplish that and use us to do so. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.